Hello again, friends, and welcome to Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel for June 2015. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. It's nice to have you with us. Most people believe, correctly, that government's first and highest responsibility is to do all it can to keep us safe within the boundaries set by Constitution and statutes. In Madison, that responsibility falls primarily to the 580 employees of the Madison Police Department, a $66 million operation which, like the rest of the city, was rocked on March 6th by the officer-involved shooting of a biracial 19-year-old named Tony Terrell Robinson, Jr. After an investigation by the Wisconsin Department of Justice, Dane County District Attorney Ishmael Ozane announced he would not bring criminal charges against Officer Matt Kenny. An investigation continues into whether Officer Kenny violated any internal policies or procedures and whether he should face any departmental discipline. Here to talk about that tragedy, its aftermath, and other matters is the man who has led the Madison Police Department since April 2014, Chief Michael C. Koval. Chief Koval is a proud graduate of Madison West High School and the University of Wisconsin and received his law degree from William Mitchell College of Law. In addition to a career with the MPD, which began in 1983, Chief Koval has also been a special agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Prior to his appointment to head the department, Chief Koval was the sergeant of recruitment and training for 17 years. And while at the University of Wisconsin, he also spent three years as Bucky Badger. Chief Koval, thanks very much for being with us tonight. Thank you. You certainly got the whole profile in today. Well, wow. we, try, we try and do our research. Nice to, uh, job. To, uh, Forgot about Reggie Regent at Madison West. Well, you know, it's not on your bio page. <laughs> talk, talk to your PIO to, to okay. put that in. Will do. Uh, let's start with the most recent development. We are taping on May 21st. Two nights ago, the Common Council unanimously approved a resolution creating a committee to review the department's policies, procedures, culture, and training. Mm -hmm. It allocated $50,000 for the committee to hire one or more experts to assist in that process. Was this a good idea, a bad idea, a little of both? I think it, for the most part it's a good idea. I think that uh, what we'll see is that the public needs to know and needs to have people telling them from outside of the department, from an arm's length, that in fact the policies, the procedures, the protocols, the training initiatives that this department is engaged in are in fact trending towards best practice. I think if nothing else um, it will validate uh, a lot of the good things that are being done and if there are issues that have somehow or another escaped our vision then it's appropriate that we be told that by other people who are looking at it with a clear set of eyes. Trend, you said trending towards best practices. So in your mind, there, there could be some areas in which you're not there yet? Well, you know, I, as a former trainer, I always sort of hesitate to even use the, the term best practices because it presumes your ship has come in and you have arrived. So I think you're always trying to better yourself. And I think from that standpoint, we're probably where we should be in terms of progressivism, in terms of the training dynamics and things of that nature. But, for example, just two weeks ago, I sent a member of our training team out to Washington, D.C., where the Police Executive Research Foundation, that sort of, or forum, our sort of think tank, PERF, uh, they were convening a consortium of law enforcement professionals from throughout the country. And again, sharing information on use of force, use of deadly force in particular, because I want us to make sure that we are doing everything and then some to ensure that we can even avoid the precipice of deadly force whenever 
we possibly can. So we're always going to continue to update and do R&D on those things. Well, let's talk about the use of deadly force, which sure. some people with sort of a um, TV mentality call shoot to kill. But, but in, in the, the, the official terminology is, is use of deadly force. Uh, you have a uh, standard operating procedure, a code of conduct on, on the website that talks about the conditions when the use of deadly force is and isn't authorized, mm -hmm. that uh, it has to be in the, it is authorized when an officer reasonably believes a lesser degree of force would be insufficient, quote, first in the defense of another person who the officer has reasonable cause to believe is in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm, in defense of oneself when there is a reasonable cause to believe one is in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm, to effect the arrest or prevent the escape of a suspect who the officer has reasonable cause to believe has committed or attempted to commit a felony involving the use of or threatened use of deadly force where a high probability exists that the suspect, if not immediately apprehended, may cause death or great bodily harm, and finally, to protect oneself or another from an animal which an officer reasonably believes may cause great bodily harm if not immediately controlled or to end the suffering of an animal gravely injured or diseased. Mm -hmm. You went to law school. I went to law school. We know that great quote from Learned Hand, the reasonable man, the problem child of the law. When a policy depends on reasonable and somebody reasonably believing something exists or not exists, is that a policy that everyone can understand and implement appropriately? Well, of course, that's going to be... As you also know at law school, everything was answered with, it depends. <laughs> uh, and, and looking again, the other uh, euphemism is based on the totality of the circumstances. So what you've described substantively is the cusp or the legal threshold of what basically law enforcement in the state of Wisconsin is all certified and trained to. Again, paraphrasing, if there's an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm to self or to another. So with that in mind, yes, you do have to use sort of preclusion in the sense that has the officer exhausted all things short of that? And in that sense, I do think that our policy is a little elusive, and that's why we have to look at it from a Graham versus Connor perspective. That has been the settled law since 1989 in the Supreme Court, which basically says, as you know, is that based upon the totality of the circumstances, known to the officer at that time and in light of his or her training and experiences, were the officer's actions objectively reasonable? And there's that infamous reasonableness term again. And I don't know that um, a whole lot is to be gained by tinkering too much with the legal standard per se. I think there's infinite reward for us looking at what can avoid even reaching that precipice in the first place. So for an example, if a child is wielding uh, a gun at the distances that you and I are seated at, um, based on the totality of those circumstances in just a moment's notice, um, arguably, if that gun turns out to be, in fact, a real gun and pulls the trigger, I'm very, very dead at this range. We can't have the officer wondering, second-guessing, speculating, well, is the gun a facsimile gun, or is the gun a pellet gun, or is the gun even loaded? You can't conduct business in the sense of the Monday morning woulda, coulda, shoulda 
quarterback mentality. You have to look at all of those things that are pertinent in real time at that synthetical moment where you have to make those decisions in a rapidly evolving, intense dynamic. And so I think that as much as reasonableness begs a definitive question for a lot of people, it should, by design, be somewhat open-ended to allow for those various circumstances. The language I read, is, is, that, is there anything unique in this language to MPD, or is this the language that any police department in Wisconsin or around the country? Pretty much in Wisconsin. I mean, some will go further into the text manuals that say uh, something to the effect that you should have target isolation, target acquisition, and target identification issues, but that's implicit in the training we do. Uh, The IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, has basically been sort of profound in saying less is more. If you keep the standard reduced to its bare bones minimum, it's easier to process, to synthesize, and to train on. So that's why I sort of gave you the paraphrase. Is this policy up for discussion and potential review, or are there things that when this ad hoc committee or the special consultant look at things just aren't on the table? Well, some civilians would urge that everything is on the table and everything should be reexamined. I tend to, and I, and I believe that I'm supported both by Supreme Court precedent as well as the city attorney's interpretation on this, is that uh, to have the MPD train on a different standard than what the rest of the country is, it would put us or our officers at greater peril, not to mention the city at greater liability for having a dissonant sort of standard. So, I, again, I think that we can certainly talk about what are the training initiatives that can be looked at? What are the disengagement theories that can be better uh, fortified? But the standard in and of itself, I don't know that that's productive in terms of trying to move Mount Everest of a precedent that's been on the book since 1989. So what training do you do in tactical disengagement or de-escalation techniques? Well, you, you take into account all the circumstances and then you're looking for the standpoint is based on these circumstances, can I create distance? Can I seek cover or both such that if I'm moving away from the threat or the appearance of a threat, that then brokers us the infinite valuable thing of time. With time comes more opportunities for decision-making and options short of deadly force. So very often, frequently, when we're on the range and doing training, a target or a silhouette will face. If that target faces and it has a gun in its hand and it's pointing at the officer, the first instinct should be that they're not going toe-to-toe with that target, but they're incorporating movement. They're step sliding to one direction or another, or they're learning to shoot from behind a barricade or a cover. So the more that you can incorporate time, distance, and cover, the more you might avoid the pitfall altogether. Same target have it turn, and have it turn with no weapon. Well, darn it, nobody's guns better be going off because for every target that turns that does have a weapon, you should also have a target that's turning that shows that not everybody represents an imminent threat. And you still should be moving. You still should be building distance. You still should be looking for cover. Similarly, we have a simulation room in which literally using laser and graphics, it's sort of a hologram experience, We have officers, not just at the pre-service, but in ongoing training, 
go in there and basically reduce to its simplest denominator. Uh, it, it's a, a shoot or don't shoot. So you are going, you're engaging in this very realistic, full-to-form figure with a laser-sighted gun. And if they bring out a cell phone instead of a gun and you shoot and fire, the scenario stops, you have to articulate, you have to go through an officer-involved shooting debriefing. Or similarly, and by the way, as you shoot at this target, it records if they've already shot it at you, how much time it took, where your rounds are landing, if they're landing, if at all correctly, whether they are lethal or non-lethal. So it's a, it's a highly sophisticated uh, scenario-based form of training. Lots of people go on... This sounds like something out of Star Trek. With the it hol- is, with almost like literally. The holodeck. Um, lots of people go through ride-alongs. I've, yeah. You know, once, or, once a year or so, they're, they're very interesting, and sometimes they can be um, very informative and, and even scary. Yeah. Um, would it be possible for people to experience this aspect of what, what police training is like, to, to see what, what those shoot or don't shoot? scenarios you like and actually experience the kind of holodeck training that you're talking about? In essence, every fall we offer what we call a Citizens Academy, where for eight successive weeks, nine successive weeks, from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at night, you sign up and maybe the first uh, block you're going to get nothing but me with the fourth and fifth and sixth amendment training. But, But there are use of force components, which they can literally go from both the range as well as to the simulation room. And we also have a simulation uh, device for driving vehicles very quickly with obstacles. So there is a lot of technology, and yes, they can enroll for that course. It's free, and we often encourage uh, alders or we encourage particularly members of the fourth estate who are writing on these sort of issues to experience what that's like in real time. And sometimes we get some real uh, epiphanies and a born-again sort of perspective. See, what you need to do is you need to invite Brandy Grayson and other members of Young Black Gifted Coalition to come in and experience that. That that might be an interesting... If, uh, in fact, she's, she is eligible. So if, in fact, she signed up, it might be a, an illuminating experience to her. And bring, we can bring some cameras in and make a reality series out of it. Uh, an, another thing that is up for discussion, either as part of this committee yeah. or... or Otherwise, is the use of body cameras. Yeah. Um, are they inevitable? And, and what are some of the privacy and uh, public records aspects that might flow out of that? Interestingly, Stuart, I think that before March 6th, with the death of Tony Robinson, I think that for our community, it may have been a 50-50 proposition. In light of that, though, I think that obviously it's trending more towards looking at those being accepted as part and parcel of our workplace. Now, in terms of the realities, is that the council has yet another committee. They've been granted a $30,000 contract for someone to facilitate what will be, I hope, a 360-degree, very comprehensive focus groups, um, tapping into survey instruments, which includes door-to-door for those who might not have online technologies, sort of to gauge and or to measure, does our community, Madison, are we ready? Do we want it? Is it our time? Some of the issues. First of all, Madison doesn't start from ground zero when it comes to recorded technology, as, as we see. Um, those areas which have usually been the most highly contentious about what is recorded police activity are already being recorded. By that I mean all of our traffic stops. Anytime those lights go on, 
you're on candid camera and you're being mic'd and all that is recorded. Anytime a juvenile is going to be interviewed and there are Miranda issues, there are voluntariness issues for either what would be a misdemeanor or a felony, those must be recorded. Anytime an adult facing the same sort of parameters, Miranda or voluntariness, anytime an adult is going to be interviewed for a felony, has to be recorded. And perhaps, interestingly enough, one of the most um, highly liable activities, the operations of our SWAT team, our Special Weapons and Tactics team, we have been recording all of those operations for the past two years. So we're not starting from ground zero like we've never been familiar with this technology. Now to your question. The parameters I see is that while my, my biggest concern for Madison is that I'm concerned that cameras like so much in my industry, my profession, offer a shortcut, quick solution to some highly complex issues. It's sort of now our flavor of the month. So I wouldn't dispute, not for a minute, that cameras will bring us instantaneously high transparency. However, if you look at the Eric uh, Warner, uh, the choking mm -hmm. uh, in New York, I think I think that's trending of upward of 14 million hits for people who have viewed Eric Garner, excuse me. And in that context, I would say, whoa, off the charts for transparency. But if you ask those local constituents, where are we at from an accountability standpoint to them? They'll say very low accountability because no one's been charged, no one's been sued, nothing's happened. So. My concern is that we don't equip, that we don't put them on an equivalent par. And the other thing with the cameras, oh, go ahead. Says, I'm accountable to the floor director, Please. and we need to take a short pause. My part. We're talking with police chief. I say, I told you when I turned to face the camera, You're that right. was that was that was my body language. There's too much into you. it. We're talking with Madison Police Chief Mike Covo. We're going to take a short pause for some very important announcements, and hope you come back with us. It's the June episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. We'll be right back. <laughs> This close. Yes, this close. Two select models. This close to making history. Of one century. We are this close. We are this close. To changing the world. We are this close. To making sure no child suffers a crippling disease ever again. We are this close to making history. We are this close to ending polio. Because we are this close to ending polio. We are this close to ending polio. We are this close to changing the world. This close. I mean, it's you. It's you. It's you. It's you. We are this close. This close. Be a part of history at rotary.org slash end polio. If I ride, I will know the way the trees smell after the rain. I will grow a heart so strong that hospitals will take Tuesdays off. If I ride, road rage will turn into laughter, and oil tankers will haul chocolate milk. And I won't be a boy or a girl. I will just be a rider.
Welcome back to Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I'm Stu Levitan. We're talking with Madison Police Chief Mike Cobol. Chief, let's finish up on some of the policy and uh, privacy issues yeah. that, that might arise out of the use of uh, body cameras, especially in domestic violence and, and other situations. Are those, are those concerns that the department has addressed, that other departments have addressed, or are they still things that need to be worked out? I think those are still evolving. You're right. What if we go to a domestic dispute where no one has committed any criminal act? That's going to be considered an open record, filed, indexed, catalog, and sent somewhere for 120 days. Or a juvenile who's obviously been caught with a miscue, a misstep, a hiccup in their growing up in their maturation life. That's recorded. A sexual assault victim. It's going to be recorded. It's already very difficult because of their graphic nature. And, quite frankly, Madison has a Latino community, which I think is underreporting and witnessed crimes now. And given that additional layer of now all those crimes are obviously going to be recorded, we already have a sort of a disconnect with people worrying about living uh, under the shadows and immigration issues. And I'm concerned that that will further intensify that. But be that as it may, uh, the committee will do the polling. We only offer a subject matter expert to assist with them if it's determined that Madison has reconciled all these privacy issues and are ready to make the next leap forward and they balance that and they want this transparency that only body-worn cameras can provide, then we'll accept those findings and move on. But it will be at an eye-popping sum. Do you have a Over $900,000 to start up. You say if the committee or... or so some amorphous group just decides this. Yeah, it's the mass. It's, it's the, under, in Wisconsin law. It's the police and fire commission that ultimately are, is responsible for the operations that supervise you, that supervise the department. That is correct. If the committee and the council say, yeah, we want X, Y, Z policy, we want body cameras, whatever, and the police and fire commission say something else, it's going to be something else. Well, I think what. What, what you're suggesting is absolutely true is that they can't micromanage the chief of police. Uh, that is absolutely correct. And in that sense, the Police and Fire Commission is the de facto civilian oversight that everybody's clamoring for. It already exists. Uh, but I am certainly going to be receptive to the community sentiments on something of this order because I think that is something that is, in fact, within the reasonableness parameters of what we can offer as another service if people feel that will be more invigorating towards trust. Okay. Let's turn to the, the tragic events of March 6th and some of the questions that some people still have about what happened that night and why. Uh, the Wisconsin Department of Justice submitted a report of more than a thousand pages. This is uh, the first, I believe this was the first instance, certainly was the first local instance of a of DOJ doing an investigation of an officer-involved shooting following the new state statute that required uh, an outside agency to, to perform. Actually, this is our third. This, this was your third. Third. Third time since the law took, took root. How, what were the other two? The first one came literally a number of days after the law was operationalized. It was on my yeah. third day as chief when uh, there was a gentleman on East Washington Avenue who had some mental health issues and was sort of going through a crisis. He was living in a sort of a boarding house area in which he had stabbed three individuals 
killing two of them, and our officers went to try to stop the assaults, and obviously he then assaulted them with a knife and was subsequently uh, slain by our officers who responded. The next one occurred <laughs> 16 days thereafter, where basically, you know, sort of the paraphrase is that it was sort of a, a simile of uh, a suicide by cop where a woman who was, had been drinking and was emotionally upset um, over the recent uh, abandonment of a, a relationship she was involved with uh, was holding and pointing a gun towards officers and during the context of that at some point uh, refused to relinquish the gun and, and obviously threatened the officers with the gun and so some portend who will ever know because we can't possibly know the the dynamics fully about what was going on in that scene based on her frame of reference but that occurred then um, on MacArthur Road, and then this is our third. How does the, is the psychological and emotional impact on an officer in those instances any different from what Officer Kenny would have experienced as an aftermath of his, in, his encounter with, with Tony Robinson? You know, it's interesting. In the first two, you obviously at least had what we all understand to be a more tangible threat in the sense of a knife or a gun. In Tony Robinson's instance, there was no overt object in his hands per se, which I think contributes to the complexity of the analysis on this. Um, some have opined that, well, for goodness sakes, um, why would the police ever be put or thrust into a position where an unarmed person would be uh, killed? And for that, I, I can only suggest that, first of all, there's never a truly an unarmed person call because the officers always are bringing a gun to the dispute, and we have obviously chronicled incidents where an officer can be disarmed and executed with their own weapon. But moreover, if you were to look at the FBI homicide statistics, the most recent window being from 2008 to 2012, one of the categories of homicide that we have in our country are a subsection known as personal weapons. Now, personal weapons are those people who have been killed by hands, fists, elbows, kicking, and pushing. Uh, in that course of time, I don't think there's been anything less than of those time years, uh, at minimum of 650 killed per year for an overwhelming total of over 3,800 over that time span. So this notion that anyone uh, could circumvent the personal weapons of another through uh, one means or another is a little bit out of, scan out, of, out of sorts because it can happen, and it does happen, unfortunately. But I think that, to your, to your bigger point, I think officers take a vow to protect and serve. Human life is sacred to all of us. And so to that point that you've reached a threshold where you've literally had to take the life of another, it's counterintuitive to everything we train or hope for. As a matter of fact, there have been nationally some statistics that uh, nationally, uh, even those officers who have been exonerated on a legally defensible shoot, that nationally about 50% of those people leave the profession altogether within five years of that date of shooting because it is very profound and very difficult for some people to reconcile. We'll get to the implications of officers carrying weapons and the future of Officer Kenny in, in a moment. 
Back to the, the DOJ investigation, how important was it to you, the department, and the community at large that this, that this was investigated by an outside agency as opposed to being investigated by MPD? Do you, do you, do you see that, oh. that that served a, a real purpose? A absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the folks who have worked mightily to get this law uh, should really literally take a bow because now Wisconsin is one of but a handful where this is now the mandate moving forward. And I think that is an exceptional opportunity for the police, for the profession, to have that sort of sense of arm's length, independent uh, fact-finding to avoid even the appearance or the specter of collusion, I think is infinitely beneficial in terms of sorting through some very volatile situations. So you don't see a need for the United Nations to do a, an additional investigation at this point? I, I, I'm very comfortable with what DCI has done. As I said, the, the reports, uh, I think it was 1,078 pages. It takes a while to yes. download on your computer, but it's, uh, and, and there are lots of redactions, so it can be a little difficult to read at times. Cumbersome, it's, right? It's, it's, it's very complete, and there's a 27 page uh, executive summary, essentially, that, that gives the narrative. Did that report answer all your questions, or are there things about this incident that you still don't understand? Well, again, and perhaps if ever there was a crowning moment for those who would champion body-worn cameras, it would certainly have been helpful on the night of March 6th if that had been the case. Um, I, I'm trying to postpone or suspend judgment on what could be administrative issues that will still be in front of me. But, of course, I think the thing that uh, everybody has been talking about, speculating about, are things that I've answered when I've been at community forums is that why did he have to go in, if at all? That's sort of the first uh, condition precedent that gives people concerns. And, and, and legally, again, as you know, an officer can only get to that other side of the door, the threshold, the interior door, owing to one of three methods. Uh, consent by someone with apparent or actual authority to give that consent, some sort of a warrant mechanism to get to the other side, whether it be a search warrant or an arrest warrant, and the third, and that's the $64,000 question, is exigent circumstances, which in layman's terms is, was there a need to take immediate action or time brooks no delay? Can't think about getting a warrant because there's an, someone is in imminent peril of some kind or another on the other side of the door. So some would say uh, he should have stood down and waited for the backup, which would eventually be occurring. But obviously, as practitioners, we are trained to make an assessment based on the totality of those circumstances to suggest But if I wait that 20 seconds and someone is, in fact, stabbed to death because I stood down and waited arbitrarily for that backup to arrive, what could I have prevented? So I think those are the issues that uh, we'll be looking at in terms of administrative review, but the fact that the district attorney's office was able to reconcile it. The, the standard for criminal culpability is, of course, much more stringent than looking at an administrative review for a policy infraction. Uh, we'll, we'll get to, to the, that administrative review as well, but on the point of what Officer Kenny heard regarding a struggle upstairs, we've seen some, some very disturbing uh, dash cam video. Does, did that... Did that camera also pick up sound that would tell us what Officer Kenny would have heard, or, or was that... Uh... 
Well, that, no audio that audio wasn't working on his squad car once his lights deactivated, but we do get some ambient sounds from the other officers who responded relatively quickly. That's where we get some of that backdrop uh, in terms of the language that was used and things. Uh, when he went upstairs, Officer Kenny proceeded in what's called the, the low ready posture, which is his gun was drawn, he had his, his in, in this posture. Um, well, it, it's drawn, but it's down. Okay. It's pouring down if you're at low ready. He had received information that, that Tony Robinson was not armed. Why proceed with the gun out at all rather than relying on a taser, baton, or, or some other mechanism? Well, I think because you don't know the physical proxemics of where you're entering, the lighting, the stairs, the pitch, the, the room to work, and because it's an unknown commodity, as, as you may recall, there were multiple calls to the 911 center by multiple complainants, and with each successive call, there seemed to be an escalating tenor and gravitas to what was occurring. So. It's, uh, you would rather have your gun at a position where it could be usable as opposed to snapped and holstering your gun. And then if you're in the fight of your life, literally, and can't access it, it's much easier than to reholster if that were to occur. One of the things that a lot of people ask is, why not the taser? Well, taser has its uh, opportunities, but it's not, again, an inviolable uh, sort of uh, magic panacea to everything. It has an optimal range of about 7 to 15 feet, and when it's deployed, it obviously is somewhat reliant on electricity, and the way it works is that there are two probes that are fired, and unless both probes adhere, that electronic circuitry will not work, and it basically can be held harmless, if you will. So a lot of times in, in my line of work, you don't sort of get a do-over when things are that close in space and time. The attorney for... Tony Robinson's family said that an, invest, an independent investigation shows that uh, Officer Kenny was ordered to wait for backup before entering the house uh, on March 6th. To the best of your knowledge, is he correct? I, I have no idea where the source of that information has come from because he was not ordered to stand down to wait. Would it once he realized that he was when when he realized that entering the apartment put him in a narrow staircase at stairwell at which Tony Robinson was at the top. I mean, that would seem to be a tactical disadvantage in terms of height and, and surprise and everything. At that point, could he have realized, I need backup? Well, again, these are rapidly evolving, tense situations, and we're at a disadvantage in going into someone else's home because... We have no idea what the dynamics or the lighting is of all that. And my understanding is that the, the particular pitch of that stereo was extremely narrow and very steep. Mm -hmm. So as it was, it was a, literally a sudden assault the moment he had entered into the hallway. So I don't know that there was that sort of time and presence of mind to be able to reconnoiter and make a tactical decision to move out. I think the problem, if you will, the behavior was already upon him very quickly. One of the bits of Matt Kenny background that uh, came out immediately after after this uh, uh, incident was a picture of him as one of the three officers who delivered uh, cake to uh, some of the, the first gay and lesbians who were getting married under the Wisconsin yeah. uh, law just outside here in the courthouse. How well do you know Matt Kenny? Well, I know him only because I would have been one of the training team members when he 
took the oath of office almost 13 years ago. Uh, obviously knew him to be a very diligent recruit and an officer who was very committed from his previous uh, role as a, uh, as a medic in the Coast Guard to the preservation and the sanctity of life. As a matter of fact, he's been re recognized for having rendered life-saving uh, uh, first aid in many instances. And owing to his sort of uh, passion for that very thing is that he was one of the pioneers who, out of his own money, purchased tourniquets and trauma badges, which then he sort of lit a fire under the training team, and now that is a, a common item that officers can order from their uniform and equipment allowance. And he trains in first aid, both for pre-service and in-service, because he is so passionate about it. Uh, we'll talk about his future in a moment. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're talking with Madison Police Chief Mike Koval. I've got a minute to before we get to that. Let, let, the, um, you wrote on your chief's blog on May 12th, you expected the report uh, on from the Professional Standards Unit in about a, another week or so. It's, yeah, it's by been, next week, I think. Um, so the status is that still is under review? Yes. And and how what, once you get the report, how long do you think it'll take you to then? Well, obviously, because I think Matt, the community, the media, everybody wants a piece of it. Of course, I will double down and and throw myself immerse it immediately so that we can get some closure for everybody's sake. Okay. We're talking with Madison Police Chief Mike Koval. We're going to take a short pause for some important announcements and be back with more. It is Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. Please stay with us. <laughs> Siempre es bueno llegar a casa, pero muchos se enfrentan el riesgo de una ejecución hipotecaria y la pérdida de sus casas. Making Home Affordable del gobierno de los Estados Unidos ya ha ayudado a más de un millón de dueños de casa como estos. Cuanto antes actúes, mayor la probabilidad de ayudarte. Mi hogar es mi Welcome back to the June 2015 episode of Access City Hall on the Madison City Channel. I'm Stu Levitan. We are still with Madison Police Chief Mike Koval. Let's talk some more about uh, the tragic events of March 6th and, and the aftermath. Tony Robinson was the latest but not the last in a series of unarmed black males uh, from adults to children who were shot and killed by police officers. How did those external events in your mind affect the local reaction? Was the local reaction so intense because it fit into what seemed to be a developing national narrative? I think it definitely dovetailed into that being the calculus of what we were seeing played out on our screens at home all too frequently. But I also think that in a sense, um, and it concerned me from the outset, in a sense our community's concern about the racial disparities on so many socioeconomic levels 
this almost was a, a sort of a capstone or a, 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 a tipping point, if you will, that sort of galvanized all of the frustration that we as a community have struggled and not done a great job of reconciling. And this was sort of that proverbial straw that broke the camel's back in, in some people's minds. Is there racial disparity in criminal justice system in Madison? Absolutely. How does that manifest itself? And, and what role does the police department have in creating and addressing it? Well, I think for our standpoint, if I'm looking at the root causes, uh, obviously I don't think that I'm running a bunch of rogue cops who are deliberately or intentioning, uh, purposing uh, their their efforts at profiling. I don't think that's happening. So now the second point is, are we do we have uh, policies, procedures, protocols that are contributing to that? We're going to let independent parties deduce whether it has some sort of a de facto effect, if, it, if in fact that's the case. And I think one of the other things that we have been sort of at the top of our game is that when other people were talking about or just now talking about training in unconscious bias training or implicit bias training, we've been doing that for the last seven years owing to the help of Professor Patricia Devine at the University of Wisconsin. So we do it as a member, as a part of our in-service training. We do it as part of our pre-service training. It's not sort of a one and done and, okay, that's off our bucket list, never to be achieved again. So we are cognizant of those things that we have to be mindful of. So when I'm looking at these issues, I, I would suggest that when you have abject issues relating to poverty, poverty compels all of us to make more desperate choices when we're faced with desperate circumstances. So if I'm looking at, okay, I don't have a registered vehicle and the plates are suspended and I haven't had a driver's license because I'm trying to get a job or I can pay the rent or feed my family, you're going to do what you're triaging to do. And so I think that with poverty begets people more inclined to do desperate things under desperate circumstances. And unfortunately, our folks of color in our community are more pronouncedly affected by the poverty issues and therefore are, are, are looking at those issues more that put themselves in the, in the scope of the criminal justice system. Do you think that the fact that Tony Robinson perceived that he was violating his parole or his probation that evening affected his further choices in, in how he uh, responded to the police presence? You know, that's difficult to say because he's not here to speak for himself on that and, and to say what was going on in his mind at the time. I guess based on what inferences I'm able to draw from thus far from what has been read is that um, I think that there was some measure of impairment and dysfunction taking place owing to the drug use that day and other things. But I, I don't know that that was literally part and parcel of what was contributing to the behavior as it was manifested that night. Do you believe that there are black males in Madison who are arrested for behavior and actions that white males are not? Well, I guess it would go to the point of where is it occurring to some extent and in what context, I think. I don't think that, I think obviously many people believe that. And at the end of the day, I can't dispute it because I can't possibly uh, anticipate all of those situations. I do know that when the police are typically called for an arrest, it's more often than not owing to on-site things that we're discovering that we're hearkening upon. It's more like it's going to be called to the 911 center. It's then brought to our attention. And then once we're brought to those attention points, 
we have to make some sense of legal defensibility for what we're going to do next in terms of taking away someone's rights or liberties. The fact is, is that in some of those areas where there's less privacy, apartment houses or out in the street or things like that, where there's less privacy, there's more likely to be third-party witnesses that are going to pick up the phone and call. I'm not suggesting that white folks aren't committing crimes in the same sense or frequency, but we're not getting the same sort of uh, third-party callers or being made aware of it as much. What will you do if, it, if presented with, with evidence that there are, there are instances where police respond differently to black males to, than to white males for, for the same conduct? Well, I think obviously we have to be probative and introspective and say, what is it that's intrinsic to the training or to the selection of those we hire? Or is there a culture that sort of facilitates that environment? But I hope that's not what we find. You you, you wrote a blog entry following the, uh, the DA's blogs, just for the record. Well, okay. well, between right. you between you and Joel Despain, you, you keep active. I you, hate you, him. You right. wrote an entry in which following the, the DA's decision not to prosecute, in which you said, "quote We have the capacity to be part of a movement rather than settle for a moment." What did you mean by that? I mean that this is an instance where we can look at some of the institutionalized impediments to the criminal justice system and not just ascribe or look at this as a moment in time in which the lessons to be learned are fleeting and there, there's no commitment to look at these issues in a substantive, comprehensive, long-term way. I think therein lies the problem is that from the shock value of the narratives we see playing out on the national campaign, they sort of have their hit-and-miss attitude with it. I think we have an opportunity to do something more substantive here. And is, is the committee that the council created going to be part of that uh, exercise in your mind? Well, I, I hope so, but I think that they're confining their scope specifically of scrutiny to what is it intrinsic to the MPD that might be flawed or needs work or improvement. The things that I am talking about, for example, is let's look at, for example, possessory drug crimes. Aren't we at a point in, in our history now, perhaps, where we can come to the conclusion that arrest, prosecution, and a brick-and-mortar solution has not proven to be terribly effective? Maybe we need a paradigm shift altogether where we look at possessory drug issues as addictive qualities, which call for a treatment modality that is far less expensive and has an upside far more lucrative than brick and mortar. Those are the kinds of long-term solutions that I'm asking we look at. Or CCAP, the automated online court process, which basically, at a keystroke, gave everybody's record of arrests and prosecutions, your rap sheet. So if you're a young man at 17 or 18 and you had a petty crime, and then you've matured, and it's 10 years down the road or even five years down the road for a petty crime of theft. Why is it that that prospective landlord, unethical and illegally, or that prospective employer, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to run you up for your rap sheet. They're not looking at the dispositional code that says the charges were dropped, the charges were dismissed, or the person was outright acquitted. People look at the salacious column that says, you have a rap sheet. And I think those are institutional ways that we're carrying on bias towards people. So we've gone from a police chief with Gandhi and Martin Luther King posters to a police chief with Bob Marley and 
and Peter Tosh. Oh, my this, gosh. This is good. Legalize it. Chief, oh Chief says legalize it. Thank you. This is not helping my... my yeah. That's not helping. Well, that's what, that's what Joel is for. He'll, he'll clean it up. You have to spin that one. The, the future of, of our Officer Matt Kenny. Um, Bishop Harold Rayford uh, and the African American Council of Churches said he believed that Kenny acted, quote, irrationally and improperly on March 6th, and he said that Kenny should, quote, resign, retire, or relocate. Now, you had previously praised Bishop Rayford, writing on your blog about uh, the work that he and the African American Council of Churches was doing. You said you went to uh, an event there that was profoundly moving, remarkably caring and in action, uh, faithful, faith-filled, and, mm -hmm. and redoubling efforts to, to bridge the gaps of trust and, and work for uh, eliminating racial disparities. Given your previous praise of the work of Bishop Rayford, what did you make of his comments that Officer Kenny should, had acted irrationally and improperly and should resign, retire, or relocate? Well, uh, and I, I'm not going to be a history revisionist. I'm still grateful for my collegiality with Bishop Rayford. I think we have a great relationship, one that I'm proud of, and will continue to foster and, and hopefully will grow because I think the dialogue is tremendous on the upside. In that particular um, narrative, though, he's not writing exclusively or solely for himself. He's speaking on behalf of a body of ministers, the African-American clergy and ministry. So he's not speaking solely or exclusively as to his personal predilection. He's speaking as a collective voice for those. And I have to respect that he has to re uh, represent his base or bases well. With respect to the three, it was resign, retire, or relocate, something to that yeah. effect. Well, resign, the man's been legally exonerated. So uh, while that might be suggested, and I'm sure Matt has read that or heard that several times thereafter, I am not in a position to you know, do any heavy-handed techniques or urge him to do anything less than pursue the passion that he wants to pursue. He has that legal entitlement right. It's been exonerated. He has that capacity. In terms of the relocation, it's not like back in the days when the FBI, if you screwed up in Milwaukee, I could send you to Butte, Montana. I don't have an auxiliary wing somewhere where I can bury somebody in a different location. In terms of the retirement option, uh, he's a younger man, 40-something. He has 13 years of uh, creditable service. I don't think retirement is an economic option that he can deal with. So while I understand that there might be some community sentiments that go to that extreme, uh, it flies in the face of what can be done ethically and legally. Should he return to active duty on the streets in Madison? If, in fact, that is ultimately his prerogative, he should be able to pursue it. Now, as the chief, I have to also take into consideration the needs of the community and whether this will be so dispiriting, so alienating, that I have to temper his right to pursue his employment, which he's done nothing wrong, but I also have to see how can I find that sweet spot, that calculus where the community can be respected and Matt can pursue his vocation. What do you think the majority community attitude is on that question? At this juncture, I don't know because there's just been too much recency. Um, while I know that I've heard prolific things through the media or through emails to me that suggest the exact same outcomes that um, the African-American Ministry of Madison would like, 
I get an overwhelming amount of support for him and saying that he has, in fact, earned the right to continue his vocation. Somebody started a website and a Facebook page, the Matt Kenny Watch, in which people were encouraged to keep track of his movements and, and report them. It was taken down very quickly. Do you have any concerns of officer, for Officer Kenny's safety? I do. Um, the, the kind of the, the nature of our world nowadays, the volatility of some who uh, have it in their minds to do harm to others, I do worry that in some sense because of the volatility of what's happened, because of his, quite frankly, his familiarity, I, I would suggest that he's probably one of the faces that are most prominently recognized in Dane County. I worry for Matt, uh, and I worry for those who are called as his backups if he were to return to patrol services. Those things are very, I think, tangible concerns. There's a very vocal group calling Officer Kenny a murderer. Um, people are marching with printed signs saying, F the police. Mm -hmm. What impact has the last 12, 15 weeks had on the department? Well, it's sort of like, you know, if you were thinking of it as a parent-child relationship, if a parent were to tell their child early, often, exposures to, you're not smart, you're fat, you have a poor complexion. If you hear that drum roll with enough repetition, it can't help but enter into a little bit of the psyche of that child's self-esteem. Similarly, while one of my roles is to remind my officers how their selfless service has, in fact, helped us move forward together in community with community, that unfortunately when you hear that often enough, I think it has an aggregated sort of effect on your psyche, on your toll. So I think we are all sort of vicariously uh, living this very long journey with community and in community. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's difficult, and I hope that we have some measure now where there's a, a sense of some closure and we can move towards a healing and, and God hoping, some measure of reconciliation ultimately. Mm -hmm. I meant to ask this much earlier. What is the racial and ethnic composition of MPD in relation to the racial and ethnic composition of Madison? Sure. Well, according to the Division of Civil Rights, my understanding is that Madison is roughly between 18 to 20 percent persons of color. That is, in fact, the case with my department. Um, in terms of African-American demographics, the most comprehensive census would urge about eight and a half to nine percent of our city, and we're a little over at ten percent African American in the department. The national average for women in this very much a, a good old boys network still, federal, state, local, county, municipal, um, university, uh, corrections. Women only reflect twelve percent of our workforce, and yet in Madison we have over thirty percent. So. I think that uh, one of those uh, Obama 21st century of policing recommendations is you must uh, affirm the fact that a community can only re be representative of its community interests if you have a diverse workforce. And I think that Madison is far ahead of the game in that particular category. Uh, we're almost out of time. The Young, Gifted, and Black Coalition has called for the removal of police patrols from certain neighborhoods. Uh, are there neighborhoods, particularly minority neighborhoods, which are over-patrolled? 
Well, of course, that is their rhetoric, of which I vehemently disagree. We have 125 registered neighborhoods in the city of Madison by its own website. I have neighborhood officers, one person, eight hours a day, neighborhood officers in 15 neighborhoods. Uh, and they, like I say, they are not necessarily call-driven as much as they are community activists uh, and people that help look at quality of life issues for those neighborhoods and to have a presence, a sense of symmetry, a standpoint of constancy. They volunteer for that assignment. It's a four-year assignment with a one-year extension. So my sense is that, frankly, some of our most relational work is being done there. Our statistics would reflect that if you look at the, the most uh, challenging demographic, the 17 to 25-year-old African-American men of color, where are those consequential contacts occurring between police? It's not in the neighborhoods. Where is it? The top ten, uh, East Town, West Town, uh, the four bus hub exchanges, the four high schools, and uh, two prominent discount box centers. In a word, finally, has the activity, have the activities of the Young, Gifted, and Black Coalition been helpful or harmful? I think they've been helpful to the extent that they have pursued the racial disparities to another level. Harmful in the sense is that I think that at times their message is so militant, so radical as to be off-putting when you use terms or rhetoric like murderers or sanctioned killing. I think that's uh, not constructive. That is where we're going to have to leave it. We are out of time. Thank you for being with us on this episode of Access City Hall and Masson City Channel. My thanks to Police Chief Michael C. Koval and to all of the staff here at Madison City Channel. We'll be back next month with an all-new episode. I'm Stu Levitan. Until then, thanks for watching.